Freetopia Urgently optimistic discussions with experts about the technological risks and opportunities shaping our future. I think the critical evolution of token engineering was from recognizing analogies to circuits and semiconductors and like low-level control systems to saying what can I do if I have sort of a low-level economic microcontroller? What do I build on top of that? Welcome back to Pertopia. This is Nima, co-host of the podcast. This week we're talking to Dr. Michael Zargam, who with Trend, our previous guest, is one of the founding figures of this new movement called token engineering. You'll definitely learn more about it during the podcast, but just be warned, we start out a little bit technical, but we'll talk more about the applications as we progress in this episode. We hope you enjoy and see you next week for the next episode. Hello, podcasters. Uh, today, after two or three, two and a half failed tries at uh, recording this very interesting episode with Michael Zargam, uh, Dr. Zargam, uh, we finally managed to get on a call and everything seems to be working. It's still kind of suboptimal, but we're I think we're happy with the setup for now. Uh, hi, Zargam. Can you maybe uh, tell us very briefly about your path from, I think you work in the robotics and automation space. And uh, in the past two plus years, you've been very active in token engineering and blockchain. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about why or how you connect your experience in the past and with what you're doing now. and. Uh, what is your personal uh, USB? Like, what is it that you're bringing to the blockchain space? Sure, thanks for having me. I'm um, coming from a background that includes a, a variety of sort of math-heavy and complexity fields. I, um, I worked on some system dynamics and mathematical models of social and economic systems, actually, when I was an undergraduate. And I shifted over into robotics and AI sort of towards the second half of my, my undergraduate time because I was a little underwhelmed by the mathematical complexities and the sort of tools available. Um, I worked on some robotics projects with the Army Corps of Engineers, and I went and did a PhD in the robotics lab at the University of Pennsylvania. Continued to do research that was funded by the DoD, but actually shifted my focus more and more towards um, multi-agent systems that were not inherently uh, robotic, but actually more economic, social, and decision-making oriented. A large part of that was because my group kind of sat between robotics and Wharton. And as I sort of wrapped up um, working in the robotics lab and sort of focusing on AI and decision-making technologies, I shifted into a more business-oriented role running an operations data science team for, for three years and basically just ri making rich people richer and quit my job to sort of dive back into research and the sort of larger blockchain community seemed like a good place to get my feet wet again, um, mostly because there's a lot of new opportunities for doing this sort of you know, systems, science, AI, decision-making work in a way that would benefit the public rather than uh, simply making, you know, rich people richer, as I said.
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I personally had this framework of looking at what you're doing and what's happening in the space. There was this common, uh, let's say, understanding that now uh, the past couple of years was the right time to build the platforms and protocols, not, not really the best time for creating usable apps. There's this example of CryptoKitties. Uh, I, I actually I was a heavy user for a couple of weeks and uh, got lucky with that, but still it was really difficult to use. So uh, with this perspective, there's the application layer and below that there's the platform or protocol layer. But I, I see what you're doing and people like yourself, uh, there's something beneath that layer, which is the tools, uh, which are really lacking now in the ecosystem. And it's kind of like the, the top and bottom layer, which is like the application and the tools layer are a little bit underfunded and underrated. W would you agree with this view or do you see the stack differently? I'm going to draw your stack into a circle. So what's happening here is that the tools, at least the ones that I'm focused on, and I think many other people are focused on, are necessary in order to figure out how to use the platforms in order to create value for end users and you know collections of end users. So um, in a sense, um, we have had so much focus on capability and not enough focus on what to build with those capabilities and how to build them that our missing link is both the building of the right thing at all, which is um, fundamentally something that we can use tools to help better understand. And then also once we've decided what to build, how to build them better. Though I will you know, jump on your CryptoKitties example. And with a little bit of effort, I, I taught my mom how to play and she played during the sort of CryptoKitties bull run at the end of 2017. And she made enough money to buy herself a MacBook, though I had <laughs> to buy it for her because she didn't know how to exit the Ethereum. Uh -huh. I, um, I have to say that that project in particular did a very good job of prioritizing user experience. And it sort of set the bar. It's like, this is as good as you can get right now. Therefore, maybe we should step back and figure out how to make it better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. Zagam, uh, this is Anish. Uh, apologies again on behalf of both of us. I mean, I had a quick question for you. Uh, the, the question I had was more in terms of you being around in this, uh, you know, as you mentioned, in the token engineering space for the last three years. And, uh, you know, what would be your take on it? What makes it critically important? And what are the trends that you have actually seen in the last three years, if you don't mind, for our audience? Sure. Um, so token engineering is interesting, right? Because a lot of people would say that it's just another like name for crypto economics. And I'm going to strongly disagree with that. And, and I think its value and its role and even its history has been sort of a reaction to the sort of what I'll call backward-looking nature of crypto economics. People are analyzing things. And, and engineering is, is um, traditionally the opposite. It's, it's synthesis. It's creating something. And in the case of tokens, um, I actually had a long conversation with, with Trent a couple years ago, I guess now, about the naming. And the naming came from the idea that a token is in a sort of atomic unit of information. It's the thing that carries information through these systems. And so we placed it in um, sort of contrast or like likeness to an electron in an electrical system. So it's an atomic unit of information flowing through a circuit. 
And so, you know, it's taking that step back to the sort of, okay, where did this come from? You're making a connection to engineering as a discipline for making things. We're taking a focus on the way that information flows through a system and essentially trying to architect an information system that facilitates some some need at the system level and at the individual level at the same time. And I think the critical evolution of token engineering was from recognizing analogies to sort of circuits and semiconductors and like low-level control systems to sort of saying, what can I do if I have sort of a low-level economic microcontroller? What do I build on top of that that people need and can use? And if anything, I think the field has done a, a good job laying that framework for um, essentially signal processing and information flows as the basis. And now we're actually getting into the questions that I consider um, consistent with the history of like cybernetics, sort of understanding how to make you know regulatory systems, information systems that enable some higher level sort of outer system change. And, and that becomes inherently more sort of challenging because the systems are less structured, but also um, inherently more impactful. So I place it at a pretty strong um, dichotomy almost to the more reductionist sort of um, thinking that's baked into the um, sort of computer science and economics approach to these emerging technologies. Uh, Zagam, you mentioned during uh, the disc uh, when you described about your long conversation you had with Trent. So I'm kind of curious. Uh, my conversations with Trent, he always described his, uh, you know, the, the similarities he saw with token engineering, with his experience that he had in semiconductors and using genetic algorithms. Uh, do you see similar threats? Uh, please, if so, please explain. Uh, certainly. So, you know, the thing is that when you're doing evolutionary computing on any problem, what you're essentially doing is creating an open loop, um, actually, discovery process. You are providing some sort of optimization objective, but you're using some underlying sort of entropy source to sort of perturb and flow. And in, in some ways, it depends on what the space you're exploring is, but that genetic algorithm is essentially mutating a space of solutions in the general direction of the objective. It's sort of a stochastic gradient descent. And I think that that particular model is actually an incredibly good model of just the, the world in general, that it's not to say that, you know, there is some global optimizer, but it does give us a, a representation of evolving a system in a way that's not as, um, not as rational in a sense. You can discover um, new things, you can avoid um, local optimal because there's some noise, some randomness injected into it. And in fact, I would take it a step further and say that in our social and economic systems, one of the major sources of entropy is the fact that there are actually many parties and those many parties may have different objectives, private signals, etc. And so over time, we get these really you know, rich um, explorations as long as we don't try to prescribe one, you know, global rational objective, which I think is a little bit too common in the sort of current school of 
of economics. Um, I would argue, though, that the sort of behavioral economics field is doing a good job starting to use data to break down the sort of homo economicus model of man. Mm -hmm. uh, Zargam, I wanted to, maybe this is zooming out in a way or moving laterally. You had this article related to the points you made called uh, engineered economic systems. We'll link to it in the show notes. And for me, the gist of it was that you uh, differentiated economic systems on blockchains or within blockchains to real world uh, in the way that uh, the the ones in blockchain, you have a perfect information system. So it, it's like a closed loop system and you have certain uh, actions and qualities that are inherent to closed loop systems that you don't have in the just you know, real world economy. Could you maybe expand on this and what are, you know, what are the superpowers that you get as as an economist, as an on-chain economist or blockchain economist that you do, you won't have uh, at your hands in the real world? Sure. So a blockchain system has a set of state variables that are sort of known and trusted in, in a sort of absolute sense. It's It just means that these are the things that the system has recorded. At the time that I was writing this article, I was actually incredibly excited and focused very much on what this allows from a control theoretic perspective, where you have a decentralized or distributed system, which has state about many, many different um, sort of actors or agents, and that you could actually have that full state available to the contract and use it to make decisions to do resource allocations or otherwise so solve sort of closed loop um, control problems, in some cases, optimal control problems. Um, but I will note that you know that that only extends to the information in the in the blockchain that is representative of activity that is sort of intrinsic to the blockchain so you actually fall quickly back to a standard model of observable and unobservable states estimators paired with your controllers because you can't suppose that all of the information is the on-chain information. So I've mm -hmm. actually shifted back to using language closer to tra traditional controls model where you have observers associated with um, uh, estimating states that you can't observe. And so the activity that you're seeing in a blockchain is actually just high-grade sensors over economic activity. So I think it does give you superpowers because you generally don't have high-fidelity sensors or high-fidelity actuators in an economic system, and a blockchain absolutely does give you those things, but oh. that you can't just naively use them and think that, hey, this is all of the information because there is you know, agent level private information, there's system level information that relates to the platform or the system or the application that is not um, intrinsically characterized in the blockchain data. And so I would say it's always important to have a, you know, global system model that accounts for the observable and unobservable states, um, potentially utility functions that are heterogeneous in the actors, and also a set of system level goals. At what point you really do get superpowers, though, because this is the sort of canonical form for uh, essentially like a cyber physical system, sort of highly networked, partially mechanistic, but also partially um, stochastic and even adversarial. So I think 
I've matured in my thinking a lot since I wrote that article because I followed that that trail and took my it took me to the sort of cyber physical systems literature as the sort of closest analogy um, that is somewhat mature technically. Mm-hmm. I think we'll get to the cyber physical systems as as an analogy, and I think that is the design space we're working in. But I wanted to ask you about this. So, in a way, if I understand correctly. Because of smart contracts and just the, the current state of the, the AI or the, the code that's running on blockchain is really primitive, we, we need to have almost too much information, which means whereas in a real world system, like let's say Uber, you relied on human judgment for everything and it was kind of soft. Uh, if the same system is going to be implemented on blockchain, we need to have much, much, much more concrete data points and sensors. And, you know, th- these things would come from uh, oracles or they could come from IoT connected devices. But is this kind of a cr- the right direction that we're going in? I'm a little bit in the opposite direction, to be honest with you. I think that we've written our blockchain sort of smart contract-centric software in a very prescriptive way, which is demanding of maximum data and has the least fuzziness. I think that as the mathematical sort of layer, what I would call the complex adaptive systems type design is actually becoming more and more prevalent, we'll see people write systems that are more and more abstracted, which means kind of much like certain AI disciplines, they'll become less interpretable to humans, but they will become more adaptive and and actually capable of managing things that are fuzzier, not because they themselves are fuzzier, but because they things that are hard coded in the rules of the contracts will be at a higher level of abstraction, and that the things that they sort of learn or capture or represent in state will be essentially derivatives of the real human behavior and that the real human behavior in a sense is going to be the source of entropy the source of fuzziness and actually the thing that makes the system more anti-fragile as a whole Zagam, just following up i mean uh, listening to what you were describing i I was thinking about this in a slightly language construct i just wanted to be sure that uh, i understand you correctly so what you're describing is the current set of blockchain ecosystems as smart contracts. And these smart contracts have been uh, constructed in such a way the language only looks after some events that happen in a particular plane. And you are describing that we, uh, so as to have an equivalent of a human, uh, you know, a human-centric blockchain or human-centric ecosystem that actually uses blockchain for governance. We need to have multiple domains and uh, multiple planes, which currently the smart contracts that are being built for controlling blockchains might not be able to uh, understand or control. Is that what you're kind of referring to there? I I think that would be a good way to characterize it. If you have any experience with the sort of application of AI in business settings, machine learning, or sort of other AI in the sort of signal processing and controls um, branch, you'll run into frequently the problem that business users who are not the technical or sort of data science team members don't really like or understand the actual solutions that you implement, even if they are generating the kinds of lifts or results that they want, precisely because they don't understand them. There's a big pivot from 
business logic representations to sort of abstractions, like mathematical models that are far less intuitive, but like just strictly better at achieving certain goals, driving towards certain outcomes, or even adapting to sort of uncertainties because they're higher dimensional and or um, in some cases, maybe not higher dimensional, but just representing a more abstract concept. So um, I think that's kind of what I'm talking about, this sort of leap from, hey, I told it what to do with this business logic to I sort of abstracted what I was trying to accomplish, did some design work, not at the programming level, but at the sort of what I would consider the AI level, and then got this result back that I can demonstrate through simulation or through other efforts, you know, meets my goals. And then I encode that logic into this computational framework with strong assertions. And then I can get results that are sort of better with respect to my system's objectives, even if they're less interpretable in terms of business logic as a human. Can I actually add a small comment to what you describe? Is it okay if I describe what you describe from an AI perspective of this challenge of actually current setup blockchains to the challenge of AI versus AGI kind of thing? Is that how you see this? I mean, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts, so why don't you go ahead? Uh, I was just wondering, because like what you are describing is the current set of blockchains being equivalent from what you are describing as equivalent of machine learning algorithms that are made for specific problems. And we, we as humanity, to have a human equivalent of a you know, governance mechanism and blockchain, we need to have an equivalent of a machine learning equivalent of an AGI. That, that, that's the impression I get from what you're describing. I, I want to make a comment about AGI. I kind of think that it's a, a little bit of a um, trap. I think that a lot of the times we say um, develop a new capability in AI and then we say, oh, yeah, but that's like not smart. It's, a, you know, we might have generalized a problem, solved a harder problem or otherwise advanced something. But of course, it's still not AGI because we haven't, you know, made a general problem solving, you know, artificial intelligence. But the way that I view this is that every solution to an AI problem just moves humans up the stack a level. Like we always sit a layer above. You can imagine autonomous cars and, you know, it's amazing. We've solved this incredibly challenging multi-layer uh, op, you know, optimization and control problem to say get a car to take us from point A to point B without us driving it, but we still show up and like you know maybe use an app to call it and tell it where to take us. So I actually think there's a little bit of a uh, a slippery slope in the way that we talk about AGI. Not that um, you know it, it's sort of like an asymptote. Like we're oh, we might be approaching it. It might not be achievable. Sort of in the sense of the speed of light. But I think it's a little bit of a trap to talk about it in terms of, oh, well, we would need, you know, the AGI equivalent. Here, I'm just saying that one level of abstraction is enough to make a slightly ge more general solution. And that means it can adapt inside of the degrees of freedom that you've, you've enabled. And at risk of going into sort of mathy things, I'm just going to say that there's a continuum there. And every time you add a layer of abstraction, and you can also add a layer of adaptivity, but that we could do this forever. And I still think that we would say, hey, we don't have AGI. 
Do you do you have any real world example or application that you are working on that really relies on these principles that we talked about? Like, can, can, have you managed to connect it to anything that really impacts uh, real world systems, organizations, businesses? I mean, I would I would start by saying that uh-huh. even just my experience in industry was was of this ilk, simply because I was building sort of adaptive decision making systems that took the business logic out and largely replaced them with abstractions of the same logical systems as uh, what I would call generalized differential equations, and then. Um, by switching into this sort of differential mode, you're able to create things that are ironically a bit more like uh, physical systems where the evolution of the system is the thing that you're machine learning, not the, um, not the system state. So um, I guess one way to put this is instead of predicting what's going to happen, like in the sense of, hey, here are my features, here are my labels, I have a sort of input-output operation, you actually level things up a bit more like an autoregressor, but with um, with dynamics in it. And this is what system identification is. And I, I would argue that sort of system identification, whether it's in robotics, whether it's in a business application, or whether it's um, used in a sort of blockchain-type system, which is something that's future-looking right now, um, is in fact an example of going up one level instead of precisely trying to prescribe something or even black box learning something. You are elevating the level of abstraction one and doing mm-hmm. a. I've specified the system as a you know a differential model, and now I've taken my past data and I've learned the you know parameters of the of that differential model and. And I say that this is a, a concrete example because, one, it is massively in practice in all of the um, sort of aerospace, like defense, robotics world, like system identifications from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, we did work with within that framework um, in the team that I ran before I left industry for, for blockchain. And I've been working really hard uh, with CADCAD, among other things, to sort of backfill some of those capabilities into the, our social and economic systems. And my designs for the sort of those systems are increasingly based on uh, modeling systems that way. And then should they be, you know, launched and measured, also monitoring and maintaining them using um, that kind of model. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted Does that to... make sense in terms of the abstraction layering, though? Because this is something that I think is tricky, and I actually want to tease out it a little bit. When you go from the system does this uh-huh. to something that represents the rules about how it evolves instead of like representing the state of the system. It's, it's learning the differential equation, not learning the state of the system. I uh, so I'm I guess the uh, dumbest person here in in this call and I do get what it implies in practice but I do not have a clear understanding of how it connects to uh, what you said generalized differential equations so and I I'm not sure we could uh, simplify it, the the mathematical part enough for like the time frame that we have in a podcast but maybe this next question could be relevant, could be helpful. I'm not I sure. Have I two, have a two-sentence uh-huh. answer for you. What I'm calling okay. a generalized differential equation is just basically taking the best practices of data science in terms mm-hmm. of representing how you would have a more general data structure and transforming mm-hmm. it 
into another data structure, something you do like a, a pipeline in data science is a sequence of transformations that may or may not include some machine learning models, but is effectively um, input output operators. If you take a system model that takes as input the same type of object that it generates as an output, then oh. even if that thing isn't vectors and matrices, if, if, if it's like tables and uh -huh. strings and whatever that you might have as a general object, you can still make something that points at itself. And so you end up with a more rich autoregressor. It's a, it's a data science-like version of a differential equation. And I call it general because it can handle things like tables or graph databases, or it doesn't really matter what the domain and range are as long as they're the same space. Uh, so, okay. so do you mind if I try explaining it, what just I understood out of the whole thing? I have a fairly reasonable understanding of data science. So to me, what you're describing is you're thinking of the whole data engineering pipeline as a mechanism by which a system is learning data from outside and the math that you normally have in the middle, which are the machine learning algorithms, are the things you are kind of thinking as the differential equations in that sense. Am I right in saying that somehow? Yes, but specifically, we're not just thinking of it as a differential equation, we're constructing it as a differential equation because in many of these systems, in particular the blockchain ones, we actually know some of how that system works, right? There are rules that have to be followed, but there are also behaviors that we don't, you know, we might incentivize, but we don't have any direct control over. So you get a system that is very much an action consequence of action but they're not this it's not anything can happen there's a essentially a differential model given the system is in this state given that this action was taken the new state is actually deterministic but the action that we took wasn't deterministic so it's combining a uncontrolled non-deterministic behavior of an actor or agent and the current state of the system and that that pipeline says therefore the new state is this thing uh, thanks that, that that explains it slightly better i was hoping that it could be you know much more made simpler and more accessible i i think you did a better job than what i was hoping to do yeah we can move on from it if if people find this interesting i have increasing writings on the topic as we're trying to flesh it out uh yeah. there's even an example in a master's thesis that will be published shortly on archive a student of mine um, did a, a crypto economics example of one of these systems. It'll be good. We will probably definitely add that in the show notes. So if people, I mean, so far, one of the challenges we have for our podcast is we are not 100% sure exactly who the audience could be. It is very possible a small fraction of the people who listen to our podcast will be very much interested in the technical aspects of cryptonomics. And going from there, if they are really interested in learning more, we could definitely add uh, the show notes and add the th thesis whenever it becomes available to our show notes. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wanted to, it's a little bit moving on, but also zooming in. Uh, you had a three-part uh, Medium article series that you co-published with, uh, who was it? Um, I wrote one with uh -huh. Charlie Rice, who's a data uh -huh. scientist um, and educator and team member um, okay. at Block Science. And then I did some 
more recent writings with Jonathan Gabler, who's my uh, partnerships director, who's running the CAD-CAD beta. Okay, okay, yeah. And I think it was in part two of this uh, token engineering series, it was called Engineering for Humankind, I think, the part two, where you talked about this example of Uber versus public transportation and how it connects to uh, the practice of engineering. And the the name of this podcast is Pretopia, and the pre in Pretopia, at least we hope, uh, people will understand it as being in a state where we are still able to uh, at least try to build for uh, potential negative consequences in future. And uh, it was funny, first time when we had the pre kind of interview with you, you even showed us this uh, graph that this like the current point of time and block science exerting force to move us from dystopia more towards the direction of utopia. So I, I wanted to connect this to token engineering, especially the E part of t token engineering, the engineering part of it, and uh, with this example of Uber and public transportation. How would you see uh, token engineering being applied to you know, future uh, blockchain-based systems like Uber that would have, let's say, a broader set of uh, parameters uh, considered compared to a business like Uber that is just optimizing towards increasing the revenue or you know maximizing the number of uh, rides or uh, shortening the lengths of you know time that you have to wait. So I will quickly sort of note that in our articles, one of the reasons we use this example with um, sort of ride sharing and um, the sort of public transit is that there's actually pretty good evidence that we had a sort of counterproductive system-wide effect where the use of public transportation was going down, the support for public transportation was going down, and even some sort of like cultural stigma associated with the use of public transportation, at least in the U.S., actually rising when it had been on a trend of, of growth and that people were, you know, using it more and that it was less associated with the sort of lower socioeconomic class. And that got reversed with the introduction of these ride sharing applications. And, you know, I tend to use it in my talks too, because I actually feel guilty. Like I use the ride sharing applications quite heavily and I'm not a heavy user of, of public transportation. Although, you know, part of me knows that that would be the, the right thing to do. It's just easier. And so I do it. And we you know we step back and we look at this from a token engineering perspective and we say, okay, well, that's in a sense then sort of a sub-optimization. We have a system-wide problem associated with coordinating people's transportation, suppose we're talking regionally in a metropolitan area. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense to have a sort of ride-sharing-like service because there's a lot of places that are hard to get to and from, or there's last-mile issues where even if you do take public transportation, you don't actually get close enough to where you need to be. So mm -hmm. it's actually an important part of the system as a whole, but it's sort of, you know, got this position now where it's the thing being optimized for as a result of the sort of, I'll say, the, the corporate alignment with uh, financial interests that 
it's sort of not maybe filling its right niche in the transportation ecology and that a, a real engineering effort, especially when it comes to infrastructure for a city or for a society, has to step uh, step out and look at the whole system from a design, development, deployment, sort of maintenance sort of health, end of life, sort of like a full life cycle view of a of a of a piece of infrastructure. And as a result, um you could imagine solutions where instead of just having surge pricing associated with, you know, the supply and demand of drivers and riders, you actually had a pricing model that, you know, respected the existing, say, transportation um, infrastructure. So if you don't want mm -hmm. people to sort of use it instead of the public transit, when public transit is, you know, available, maybe mm -hmm. the closer the um the ride that you would want is to something that's available on in my case say bart maybe mm -hmm. you would have a sort of a metric that drove the price up and this is yeah, yeah. something that i call in uh, and i think is often called internalizing an externality so in a scenario where um, there's some externalities being generated. We're careful to try to capture those inside of the system so that you can't just exploit them. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, and uh, we we are at least mental twins on this one. I exactly when you start the moment you start talking about this, I, I I was thinking about the same thing that you would use your distance to uh, public in, uh, transport infrastructure as a parameter in uh, this surge pricing model. So instead of just availability of Uber vehicles, but uh, you would use more parameters. And, and it could also be things like uh, if if your driver is using air conditioning or, or if this city is now uh, overly, uh, I mean, it's, it has too, too much supply of vehicles. So you would use these uh, externalities and internalize them to adjust the pricing. But I'm wondering if this would be something that Uber would do on its own. Like it's not really in their benefit. They, they wouldn't benefit from their users using public transportation. Uh, should this be something enforced legally by, you know, uh, cities or, or I, even nations? I think nation the problem with enforcing it legally is that we don't actually have a good sense of what those um, system models and system objectives should be. So I, not that we couldn't eventually, but like taking and unpacking what this actually would mean, like how we would actually go about doing this in order for this to work, which you'd actually have to have is a, a richer model of the, um, uh, the transportation infrastructure. And it would have to have some like well-defined global health metrics and just to be clear, the Uber model essentially already has a global health metric. It's just very simple. It's a supply and demand mm -hmm. matching one. Yeah. And as the system deviates from that, it essentially, you know, it controls a counter effect through the pricing. If you have a, a richer system-wide model and a richer system-wide set of, like, objectives, ideally something that encodes the, you know, not using the transportation, um, the the high sort of environmental cost transportation or high you know negative mm -hmm. externality transportation over the low negative externality transportation. If uh, if it's available to you, sort of 
etc, etc. I won't try to lay out what that objective function might look like, but you can think of it as being attached uh, to a dynamic model of the transportation infrastructure of the region, and then having to essentially do dynamic pricing subject to your decision's effect on the health of mm -hmm. that ecosystem. And this is a multi-scale like problem that, again, it kind of brings us more back to the sort of cybernetics type of literature, I don't think that you can accomplish it just by doing sort of local nudging in mm -hmm. a UX sense. You need a, a system-wide representation, and then you need to essentially derive what I'll call dynamic nudges from the system model and thus essentially only push back and say surge when you're trying to take an action that's counter to the goals of the system. And in fact, you would argue that this same system would potentially be flowing, having a gradient of value towards the people who are taking public transit. Maybe if you go out of your way to use public transit when it would be hard, you're mm -hmm. actually being subsidized potentially. Yeah, yeah. This was something that I thought could kind of look like negative income tax in US, but you could call it like negative right tax. Uh, which means there's like a gradient at which point maybe if the city uh, hasn't done enough to provide you with public transportation in your neighborhood, uh, you would actually get subsidies for your Uber ride. And and instead of this being like a, just a clear cutoff, like this, this zip code gets free Uber rides, instead of this, you would gradually get more and more subsidies until your Uber ride is free. And so this is actually going to bring us way back to our discussion about like blockchains and smart contracts and closed loop and open loop systems and adaptivity. Because what I am basically saying is that in order to make these dynamic policies that are responsive to information that's changing in time and like very much spread out in space, that you can't just have a business logic policy which says, well, this zip code, blah, blah, blah. You actually need something that is adaptive enough to sort of respond in the way that surge pricing responds. It has to be dynamic pricing or dynamic you know, subsidies versus taxes based on your actual activity, based on the measured effect of that activity on the health of a system. And that brings you into the, the domain of cyber-physical systems, into the domain of sort of your IoT sensors and or your blockchain as economic activity sensors and or, again, whatever information that is realistic to capture um, being fused into an ecosystem model, which is what I was calling a generalized differential equation, a, a, a model of how that system evolves, from which you could derive a control law, which was a dynamic pricing item that mm -hmm. in turn like responded to your activity with a price, and then you could make a choice. And that's essentially how surge pricing already works. We're just trying to take it up to um, a system that actually is large enough to encode those um, externalities for the community, not just for the um, sort of, in this case, the Uber's profit or for um, the supply and demand matching only. Right. So, so uh, can I, can I? Just, just to wrap it up really, really quickly, I think I thought the benefit for Uber to, to uh, get at least adopt the system would be that in some cases, it would promote the use of Uber. So it would make sense for them to join this 
let's say, dynamic pricing model, uh, because uh, at least in some areas, it would even uh, pro kind of provide subsidies and, and promote using their service. Whereas in areas where it would have huge negative externalities, like in uh, really densely populated urban areas, uh, people would be nudged towards using uh, micromobility, you know, sc scooters, bikes, or public transportation. Anish, please, you had a comment. Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, uh, Zagan, I'm thinking out loud. I'm just trying to understand this uh, in a context that everybody would think about it as a layer above. Are you seeing this in a sense of local optima versus global optima? I mean, the way I think about, uh, say, an US as a nation would be as a having a global optima. And when you look at, uh, you know, cities, it's a local optima. And sometimes these are not aligned. Are you actually seeing the role of public transport as you know smoothening out this local optima towards this uh, you know global optima, or do you think that's a stupid way to think about it? That's that's interesting. So depending on the context of the discussion, I, I have different answers. So like mathematically speaking, I actually don't like the term global optimal. Like I, I did a decent amount of work during my PhD thesis trying to use algorithms to align local optimizations with global optimization. And those were always in settings where even the global optimal was like, owned by some entity. And so in the case of the city, you know, the city is still effectively the regulatory body or the state or whomever. There exists someone to own and define and declare the global optimal. But I actually think that in general, we don't want frameworks that require this. Maybe allow for this, but not require it. Because I think some of the most important solutions that we're going to create are ones where we leave the notion of the global optimal optimal, undefined or unknowable, and we actually attempt to create things that in a sort of evolutionary computing type way, you know, sort of achieve or discover or explore the space of sort of global state by sort of you know, engineering at or working with the sort of idea of local optimal and even the idea of sort of you know, heterogeneous objective functions. Um, and I, I won't go too far down that pathway, but there's a dichotomy there. And so I, I always want to be careful of like starting with the, you know, there exists a global objective and how are we going to achieve it? Because that thing itself is inherently subjective. And there are only some cases in which there's an entity who's in the right position to, to sort of declare it. Mm -hmm. uh, Zargam, I wanted to uh, bridge... Uh, this discussion about transportation and potentially applying token engineering to this problem space to one of, I think, the really interesting uh, paragraphs you had in your token engineering medium series. I'll read it, quote, meaningful token engineering is distinguished from simply arguing that one's ICO token will grow in value by formal attention to the token's role in driving the network towards a share optimization objective associated with the network's function rather than just the token's value on a secondary market. So the, the way I connected these two things was uh, one of the shared objective functions that we, we could have for um, this transportation example is uh, instead of you, you having, you know, shit transportation coins that just grow in value because, you know, it's like a loyalty point, you have 
these dynamic parameters that would uh, you know adjust the uh, what is it like the go the the, the purchasing power of your tokens by the way you're applying it within the system. So if you have a curve, uh, some part of the curve, the same token is worth half a dollar. But if you're using this same token in uh, a, a meaningfully a good way, which is like not using it just for taking convenient, luxurious ride, then it would have more purchasing power. Um, I think that's an interesting way to think about it in the context of the transportation example, though I will go so far as to say I'm trying to shift the notion of tokens away from money and towards information. So in the example there, you know, that you could have to sort of unpack like, well, what does the token represent? Obviously, if it's not always worth the same amount of money, then it's really more a representation of a different piece of information. Maybe it's a it's a sort of a measure of your um I, I'm having trouble unpacking this specific yeah, example because yeah. I haven't it, thought through it, it, it that way. It is kind of but... like a coupon that gives you participation rights within the global transportation network. So taking the statement is from my article. The way that I actually frame this statement and frame things like it is in terms of um, shifting tokens, again, away from money, but towards um, representing, um, well, <laughs> so this is... a. I've already talked way too much about math, so I'm going to try to find a way to make this less mathy. Thank you. Basically, I'm saying there's some KPIs in your system, whether it's use or whether it's something to do with the externalities, whatever those KPIs are, they're going to be the definition of the purpose of your application or of your ecosystem. And that what we want to do is use the sort of mathematical techniques that we've been discussing to make sure that that token's sort of value or utility to a user who has it is actually strongly correlated with that KPI or to the degree to which they increase that KPI, ideally. So if you're taking an action in the... A transportation example that is using the um, you know the this infrastructure as it was intended to be used, i.e., last mile. Maybe you you're going from the public transportation to your house. Like the token that you have available should be worth much much more mm -hmm. with respect to that because you're using it to do what the system wants you to use it to do. Whereas if you're using it to, say, bypass using public transportation and instead literally run a route that is parallel to the public transportation, <laughs> you would have it be sort of far less less valuable. But even that, still discussing it in the context of paying, and uh -huh. if you're talking about systems that are using these tokens less as money and more as information, it might just have to do with you know, a right even. Maybe you're not even given the access to right, right. that service if you're not using it as it's intended. This is this is so interesting. You know what I thought right now? Uh, if we were living in a VR world and, and the highways and public transportation were virtual and could be scaled up and down dynamically, you could go the, the reverse route. Like instead of just you being penalized or rewarded for using different transportation methods, the, the, the transportation infrastructure would adjust according to the use of these tokens. 
Well, but I'm arguing that if you treat the tokens as the rights, that's essentially what you're doing. If you have a supply of tokens, and, and this is a sort of a silly thought experiment, but if, you, if the tokens themselves represent the asset that gives you the right to use that, that infrastructure, then you're creating a sort of... Um, like digital scarcity around the right to do the mm -hmm. thing, it mm -hmm. has essentially descaled the capacity of the service rather than upscaled the price of the service. I mean, wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm hoping that we can get a guest who's. Uh, we hope to do a series on transportation. We have we have the connections, but I'm thinking who would be <laughs> uh, the right person to really go deep on this one because it's a really interesting topic and it's it's really hot right now. I was about to just add something to this. So uh, you know, a couple of years ago, there there was this notion of actually tokenizing transport and I'm sure Nima who has his master's uh, undergrad thesis on this topic has already thought about a lot of these things and he had already highlighted those. The question that I had in mind was the following. Uh, if you were to virtualize any ecosystem, right, and you know, transportation is one of them, uh, you know, other things would follow soon, right? W wouldn't that actually create like a pricing of things which could result in exclusion of larger set of population? I'm just thinking out loud and asking the obvious question. More a case of exclusion well, so, rather than yes. inclusion. So, so, so yes, if it's done poorly, and I think poorly here means you know, a kickback to the who has the right to decide the system's objectives, but you can literally account for a scenario where um, the inclusivity itself is sort of part of the health of the system. So I'm not saying that, you know, we have a whole answer right off the bat, but keep in mind that like we're talking about a much higher dimensional space than money. So when you reduce something to its financial dimension, you're taking all of the complexities of the other layers and saying, yeah, you know what, um, we're going to let the cost sorted out. And when you do that, you naturally get exclusions from people who um, who don't have as much money. But in some ways, those people may have more more need or they may, and, and, and by need here, I mean, suppose you live really far away from where you work because of, you know, shockingly, prices of real estate. It's a real issue mm -hmm. out here in California. Mm -hmm. And so suppose your job was an the middle of the city and the place where you live is an hour and a half away. So like, okay, so is there a way for us to bring that question into the equation? Probably. Do I, do I know what the whole answer is? No, but I'm bringing this back to the question of what defines the, you, the system-wide values from which the rights are allocated or the subsidies are deployed. So if, you, if, if you're able to identify some of those things, you can include them, but that will really lay the, the burden at the, um, at the foot of the people who decide those, those objectives. Um, and, and this is tricky, right? Because a lot of the times we might prioritize something over another thing and then later learn that that actually yields undesirable consequences. This is part of the reason why we do sort of pretty like, you know, robotics type system modeling in order to sort of 
do computational thought experiments and say, well, what if we did define the system that way? Oh, that diverges off to some undesirable state, iterate sensitivity test under a variety of assumptions, and try to get a, at least an initial condition that makes sense. And mm -hmm. then this brings us back to the probably the most central question in all of this is governance and who has the right to describe the rules. Because even if I make the rules less business logic and more the system dynamically optimizes itself to achieve some goals or to mitigate some risks, someone still decides what those risks are, what those ecosystem health metrics are, and the system itself fundamentally still can only adapt in pursuit of those ends. Um, does that make sense? Yes, in a high level yeah, yeah. Uh, talking about outcomes and especially undesirable outcomes, I wanted to, for this last uh, kind of segment of the interview, uh, talk more about uh, looking at DAOs and these blockchain systems as uh, systems that are deployed and sometimes cannot be undeployed and, and what that really implies on you know, the amount of care that has to be taken. It, there are more like, you know, uh, space shuttles and, and rockets than uh, a toy or, or a software as a service that you could just patch with with a piece of software. Um, do, how, how do you see this uh, analogy that, uh, like, what does it really imply for us as uh, token engineers or blockchain engineers, people who generally work in the blockchain space and deal with things like DAOs? So I would say that yeah, the analogy to the you know, rocket ships is, is apt, that the reality here is that we have these multi-scale, multi-sort of time scale even systems that we can't totally understand by prescribing, uh, like saying, hey, they're going to do this thing. Um, in the case of a, a DAO specifically, I think that there's probably far too much thinking like software and not enough thinking about these as systems with a you know, human and social and economic layer. They're, the DAO isn't just the software that you build. It's the software that you build and the participants in it, precisely because a, at least a properly designed DAO is going to have an adaptive layer that includes the participants doing things that modify the way the DAO works. Mm -hmm. And once you have that kind of closed loop sort of system, the thing can go in a lot of different directions. And while you may not be able to undeploy it, you are able to sort of steer it. And so I bring this into sort of a pilot's thinking, sort of with your rocket ship analogy, where the community is still the pilot, and that community needs to be given the right capabilities to see where it's going, sort of curtail its movement in the wrong direction, and even within the community to be able to sort of identify actors who might be pushing the system sort of towards unhealthy states. It's a pretty challenging tall order because you're, you're really talking about steering a spaceship as a community, and humans aren't particularly good at coordinating. So I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about what the sort of token engineering discipline can do as a sort of, you know, extension of the of the cybernetics like history. The but I honestly think that we have a long way to go before we even totally grasp and incorporate the past before we're able to sort of take that, use it to make things for the future. 
Um, that was a little bit sort of high level. The practical point of this is working on the designs for a system called the common stack and we're attacking it in a very like sort of simple iterative you know build a piece of infrastructure like get it injected into a community work with that community to learn how to steer it better so you can almost think of it a little bit more like the wright brothers with their airplanes you know trying to feel out some of the um the dynamics in a wind tunnel before they, they take it out into the air yeah i mean you giving the example of right right brothers is uh, pretty interesting I, i was thinking in my head about how people normally do experiments in smaller scale before you go and you know do large scale experiments you're absolutely right uh right brothers definitely did a lot of uh, analysis of the propeller design apparently their propeller design was like 70 percent efficient which was pretty high for a new design so one quick thing i, I was just thinking that this is me thinking out loud uh, do, do you think there's a difference between a so-called rogue ai and a rogue blockchain Uh, does does this really make sense or is it something that we think is something that's there and you don't think is real i think a rogue blockchain is is like so so to describe a rogue blockchain would at least you even using you know trends article as the basis and talking about bitcoin as life i think we just have to recognize that it's it's an ai that like a blockchain network is it's not machine learning but it's absolutely a piece of artificial intelligence it has adaptive feedback loops in it 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 allows it to um sort of evolve and change according to some rules it has a it has the the characteristics of a piece of artificial intelligence it's just probably much closer to a cellular automata 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 is that how you say that word automata. um then it is like um what we currently associate with ai people like like to talk about deep learning things that are you know the the, the ai that's in on vogue is not the same as the whole class of ai and i would say that you know once you use a blockchain as a piece of infrastructure and, and think of it as a you know set of protocols and logics once you put them into life in the world and people start interacting with them that the the collection of that technology and that behavior has sort of in a sense like created a piece of of AI. And, and now the question is, how do we characterize AI that is best described as sort of us plus the technology, as opposed to a piece of AI that is um, sort of we tend to set ourselves apart from, but possibly unfairly when you think about how much of our AI is, that in the machine learning sense is derived from or operating on our behavior anyway. So, I mean, maybe my answer is they're not different and that they're not different in in a, in a large part because um, they aren't wholly separable from our own behavior. Okay, thank you. Um, I see. This, this does definitely make sense. Um, to kind of follow up on this one, I... I've been always curious and I was kind of shy to ask it publicly on Twitter, but what does the A in DAO actually stand for? Is it legal autonomy? It's autonomy in the sense that we uh, anthropomorphize the DAO and it becomes kind of uh, an AI or uh, is it uh, autonomous in the sense of, you know, autonomous systems like robots and rovers and that kind of stuff? 
If I told you that the honest truth is that I think that the letter was chosen and the name was picked in order to make it sound like Tao, as in like uh, the like yeah, Taoist, as in Tao. the association with Tao and Taoism, that kind uh -huh. of thing, okay. I would argue that the the naming the people doing the naming didn't necessarily have the um, the backgrounds to unpack the differences in the interpretations of the word autonomous. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that, not that they couldn't, but I just don't get the feeling that it, it was unpacked because the discussions are still very um, uh, fuzzy about that. And, and in fact, I would argue that it's closer to automated than autonomous in a lot of ways. And that it's only when we start adding additional layers and, and uh, analyzing the sort of social and economic systems that wrap around it, that we actually start to get something that um, approaches any of the definitions of autonomous. Um, I will note that I think of DAOs in the sort of the, as the technological footprint, very much like, buildings in the physical world that they're they're structures created to enable human activity and so i actually would appeal to the field of architecture which is ancient as a way of understanding how the things that we construct entangle with the things that we do as a result of that and when we start to think about DAOs less as sort of magical automated autonomous things and more as the sort of homes of our digital communities, the sort of bases of operations, the en enabling infrastructure, that actually we can get a much better handle on on how to use them, how to manage them, and how to really accomplish new things because of them. Yeah, I I, I do think, uh, however, most of people from outside the space, they would just take DAOs and uh, just think they're actually autonomous. And that's not good for the ecosystem because they aren't really like they're just a bunch of people with tokens and like we don't have proper governance. We don't know how democracy will work on chain, uh, how much uh, a dig like what, what are the degrees of freedom that we leave to these uh, basically just a bunch of lines of code and we're calling them autonomous. So I, well, I and technically. Uh, token-weighted anything isn't a democracy. Like, we have various versions of, um, you know, rules for making collective decisions, and we have this huge opening in the, the sort of decision-making space. But I'm always a little leery of the use of the term democracy because I, mm -hmm. I don't think that any sort of token-weighted voting system actually matches the definition of the term. That's not to say that token-weighting um, in, in the way that we do decision-making is wrong, just that uh, there's actually a little bit of a, abuse and misuse of terms from, again, the sort of past social science research um, and practice that are, are not totally synthesized into the thinking of our sort of you know, blockchain community. And I actually think that that blockchain community is now at a point where they need the knowledge of the outside world almost more than the other way around. There's, there's a narrative like, oh, you know, this technology and this technologist community is going to save the world. But in reality, I would argue that it, we're getting to the opposite phase now where, good job, we've created some incredible new capabilities, but actually understanding how to bring them to bear in the world is something that is going to depend mostly on our ability to put it in real-world context through the understanding, the research, and the disciplines that exist outside of that technologist space. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, so, Zargam, we're really grateful for your time. We wanted to give you maybe a couple of minutes to tell us what you're excited about and working on now. I think uh, you released CatCat and also you're working with the Giveth team on Common Stack, if I'm right. Uh, anything else, or maybe you could tell us a little bit about this too. And I think we could follow up later with episodes going deeper on, you know, each of these areas that you're working on. Sure. So, um, sort of the big overview is Block Science is an R and D firm. I I founded it, and I'm the CEO by name, chief scientist in practice. I'm very excited about several research threads, but my main interests are really in this sort of. Um, modernizing cybernetics, like we're talking about human social and economic systems. And CAD-CAD is complex adaptive dynamics. It's essentially a Python data science module for uh, differential games or these generalized differential equations. It's technically in private beta right now, but it's pretty open if people are interested in joining. Um, they can email cadcad at block.science. And we are working with the GiveF team on the common stack and actually open sourcing CADCAD is the first deliverable of the common stack project. So I would encourage you to check out uh, the common stack and hopefully people who are token engineers will, will get involved. Um, it as a entity is sort of like building or design and designing iteratively testing uh, DAO type structures, but these structures are a little bit more modest in that we're going to sort of launch, test, learn, and they're very focused on archetypes that are closer to nonprofits. A lot of people are working on DAO type systems. They're very financially motivated, and I view financial aspects of these systems more like constraints and less like objectives. So uh, a healthy system isn't going to be accumulating capital, but it also does need to have capital to live on. So I use energy analogies and work in a sort of sustainable design type framing in order to contribute to the uh, the design iteration of the, the common stack specific uh, DAO sort of reference designs, reference architectures, and hopefully soon reference implementations. And that kind of gives me a bridge to maybe the another major area of interest for me is actually um, is the sort of socioeconomics of um, sustainability, and I've been collaborating and talking a lot with uh, Sean Conway. He's the lead for IXO, and we have some some things hopefully in the works long term um, around leveraging these capabilities we've been discussing during this call for um, actual sort of environmental impact measurement incentives, etc. Thank, Thank you. you for that. Uh, I'll ask you this question that we ask everyone, and uh, I, I hope the answer will not be uh, very difficult for you. So it is, what would you do if you had a hundred billion dollars or a hundred Zargoms? And you can have a mix and match, you can combine them. So this is interesting because I would, <laughs> I would probably try to create a web of loosely coupled projects. So I know this is silly, right? It's a decentralized network. But the idea here is that to try to manage that much money or that many resources, 
through a top-down method would massively waste most of the capacity, both financially and intellectually. So the idea would be to create something that was focused at the middle scale. And while there might be a scale uh, above that sort of helped synthesize the results of all of those initiatives, and there might be scales below that were the executions of those initiatives, I would essentially delineate a handful of sort of uh, climate-facing projects that were attacking different sub-problems, probably give them a sort of a coordinated objective to work against maybe some sort of um, what I would call economic restructuring type of problem-solving nodes. But think of this as a multi-scale hierarchical network that doesn't have its instructions come top down the, uh -huh. the funding allocation would be sort of spread out widely but not at the bottom and not at the top it would be sort of in the middle and that would allow the system to sort of emerge a sort of lower level execution and at the same time sort of um establish some not strict um synthesis of those results and it's hard for me to say what that what would come of that but i'm with all this time i've spent on all of these systems i think that finding the balance between top down and bottom up is really important and the the best way to explore that for me would be to try to start something in the middle without um without essentially over specifying the low level or the top level <laughs> wow, that, 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 that was, was a the long most meta answer we've got. I'm sorry, I no, didn't no. expect the question, and that was the best I could come up with. <laughs> no, it, it, it's great, and uh, you talking, I I thought of, I don't know if you watched Rick and Morty, but there was this, like this uh, theme about, uh, I don't know what they call it, but there's like a whole bureaucracy of uh, interplanetary or dimensional Ricks. <laughs> recocracy <laughs> and and i thought like if you had a hundred billion dollars and and it would probably multiply uh if you get profits interest on that uh you you will have to come up with a system to manage the hundred billions it's it's actually really hard uh if if you have uh so much money you you don't really know how to deploy it, and uh, we should probably talk about your solution. Uh, if, I, if I actually, time. yeah, the common stack stuff. I mean, I, initially, I the best designs I have would be basically a funding pool, a a trigger function for issuing those funds into specific proposals according to um, this sort of the the function that I came up with is essentially like. A little bit like a, a neural network where you're saying, okay, there's a potent, there's an action potential and then there's an event firing and the event firing is an issuance of funds. But then, mm -hmm. of course, you have to figure out how to generate the action potentials. And I am using this um, sort of voting-like thing that I call conviction. You can read about it in the common stack. But it's a, it's a first pass at, at making something that's a little bit less bureaucracy and a little bit more social sensor fusion where everyone has preferences, they broadcast them, and what you're using algorithmically is closer to a sensor network than it is to a voting algorithm because you're, the preferences themselves are noisy, heterogeneous, and essentially just signals. And if you want to turn those signals into a joint decision, instead of trying to box them into an algorithm like voting, which was essentially 
a consequence of the physical constraints of collecting information. Like we remove the constraints of a traditional, hey, like fill out these ballots, put them in a box, like time box decision A versus B. If you repose that problem in the current, uh, you know, context with the technologies we have, you get something that's much more like, hey, here's a bunch of noisy preference signals. Here's a bunch of things that could be decided, like under what conditions does the potential decision become a, you know, discrete event, this decision was made. And uh, that's a, you know, stochastic, decentralized signal processing problem from these continuous noisy signals to a discrete event. And if you pose it that way, you get a completely different sort of idea of how you might attack it than if you just say, well, how have we always done this? And that's not to say we have a perfect solution, just we're exploring the design space. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the, the, this was expected of this conversation. We, we, had, we had the nerdiest uh, closing question. Uh, but so Zargam, thank you for your time. It, it was really interesting, and we waited actually until uh, we could record this episode to release the whole season. So we have uh, six of an episode; it could become nine. And today is June thirtieth, so um, we we should launch within the next two weeks. And uh, thank you, and thanks also to Anish for everyone's time. And uh, see you. Uh, in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Pretopia.fm <laughs>